Welcome to the Grow My Revenue Business Cast with Ian Altman, unconventional strategies for selling, innovation, and leadership. Ian interviews some of the brightest minds who share proven methods to help you achieve success and grow revenue with integrity. Every episode concludes with a quick recap of actionable steps you can take to deliver tangible, immediate results for your business. Now, here's your host, Ian Altman. Hey, it's Ian Altman. On this episode, I'm joined by Clay Bear. Now, Clay is one of the most highly sought-after speakers on the planet when it comes to how to attract and build a crowd for your business. He's the founder of crowdfundinghacks.com. But we're not talking today about funding. Instead, we're talking about what it takes to build and attract a crowd for your business. Now, I will tell you that, and no disrespect to any of my other guests, Clay may be the smartest guy that I know. If you're looking for an answer to something, Clay is the guy you go to. We're going to talk about the best way to attract a crowd to your business, and Clay's also going to share with us this idea on a six-word introduction that you can describe your business so that other people will instantly know how you bring value to them. Put on your seatbelt, enjoy this ride with Clay Bear. Clay, welcome to the program. Hey Ian, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning a ton from you because I, I always do. And what else should people know about you? Uh, well, I love the Green Bay Packers. I grew up in Wisconsin and I'm a huge Packer fan. And I love, yeah, I love connecting with people, marketing, speaking. I, I just, uh, I love hanging out with smart people like you and I love te- teaching and I love just talking on the podcast. So you probably won't get me to be able to shut up today. I'm thrilled to have you here because, and I mean this genuinely, you're one of these guys who everybody I know, whenever we've got a question, and it can be the most mainstream or the most obscure topic, the joke is, well, if you ask Clay, you'll get the definitive answer on that subject. And there's just this wealth of knowledge that that you contain. So where do you get the inspiration for all these ideas? How do you curate all this information and keep it organized? Well... I, I, I do read the internet a lot. Dude, it seems like you read the entire internet. <laughs> like- it's funny, a friend of mine years ago, uh, he, he, would, he would read a lot of things too and have a lot of good advice, but it was more for his own kind of edification. And uh, the joke he used to say is when he introduced himself, he'd say, hi, I'm Alex. I've read the entire internet. You can quiz me. Um, but, <laughs> but no, I love, I love helping people. And generally when these things come in, it's usually not from strangers. It's usually from people like you or you know, uh, looser ties in, in private Facebook groups or things like that. And I just get, uh, maybe it's a little sick. I get a tremendous amount of joy by giving someone a really good, uh, answer. If I do happen to know now, what you probably don't see is all the times where I look at the question and have no clue and just move on. Cause so, you, I, you know what? It's funny. Cause I, I've seen that happen. I think twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's two times where you didn't have the best answer for something. Uh, I've I've been fortunate enough to learn from some very smart people, and then with the internet, really, all education is free. You just pay for the packaging, and anything anyone wants to know is out there. And then when you have sort of more detailed or more nuanced questions that aren't so much Googleable, or if you've had certain struggles, um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of not problems with Facebook, but like Facebook has has gone in waves of different types, different iterations, different evolutions, and different sort of waves of value throughout the years. And I think now where I'm finding so much, uh, you and I are in a number of, of private Facebook groups together, and that's where I'm finding so much of the value is connecting with those, 
you know, 50, 100, 200 people who are, who are kind of like-minded people. You know, Seth says people like us do things like this. And the, the, question, the questions seem to be smarter. And, you know, that, that particular question you're talking about, it was a very specific, detailed, nuanced thing. I think one, you know, one thing I would love to see more is let's get better at asking questions. And the one reason I was happy to kind of record a little YouTube video answer to that was because it was a great question. It was very specific. It was only three lines, but all the detail needed to answer the question, as opposed to, yeah, I think you see in lesser groups or more sort of rookie groups, you see worse questions like, how should I market my new thing? And it's exactly. like, there's, there's not enough context there. There's not, you know, things like that. Or what, do you guys think buying a house is a good idea? Question mark. You know, like uh, those, those kinds of questions just are frustrating because it, it just shows that, um, you know, and often I think quite big questions like that are a place to hide, whereas uh, well-crafted questions are, you know, you want to progress, you want to move further. And often, you know, how many times have you heard, oh, Ian, you're launching a podcast, which microphone should I use? And it's like, if you can't find that in, you know, nine great opinions in a quick Google search of which podcast you should use for, you know, which microphone you should use for your podcast, you're not you're not trying to figure out which microphone you should use. You're finding a place to hide from launching your podcast. So I think that's a kind of an important distinction. Yeah, that's great insight. And I think, I think people have that in a lot of areas. And I know that, um, you know, obviously you've got a, you've got a tremendous reputation and track record when it comes to crowdfunding. And so I'd often get from people, they would ask a question, well, what's the best way for me to uh, raise, raise money for this, whatever it is they're pursuing and I would say, oh, well, go to crowdfunding hacks and you can read through this stuff. And someone would say, well, can I just email him? It's like, mm-hmm. okay. Right. So Clay's taken all this time to prepare all this information that guides you step by step through what you need to do. And what you're saying is, yeah, I don't want to do all that work. I just want right. someone to tell me. I want, I want Clay to read it for me. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. It's like read you a bedtime story. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. And when, whenever you see that, my radar has gotten a little more finely tuned for that. And I'm a little more uh, still polite, but a little more direct in responding to those people. And actually, a little uh, productivity tip here. There's a, so there's a great book called Essentialism by Greg McEwen, and it talks a lot about you know saying no to things, which I historically haven't been great doing in the past. And so the productivity tip is there's a little tool called uh, Text Expander, or there's a cheaper version called A Text, basically where you can load up these pre-written things. So you write um, like one I, one that I have in there is to to handle that email that I get three or three to five times a day of someone saying, hey, can you please help me with crowdfunding? It would take all day just to type out long, thoughtful responses to that. So I typed up one really good, long, thoughtful response with the appropriate links to the free stuff and whatever else. Then I just hit semicolon, no, N-O, and it fills in, you know, 100 words with all the right links and the bullets and the numbers and everything else. And so when someone says, hey, I just type semicolon, N-O, hit send, and it's all taken care of. So uh, for people who want to, you know, make better use of their time, I would say, Figure out what are the types of responses that you type out via email all the time, and then use some text expander tool, whether it's text expander, a text. Google has canned responses. There's lots of different tools, but um, you, we we don't realize that we're often doing the same things. Also, it doesn't. It allows me to get out of that email before I say, oh, you know what, this is a friend of a friend and I really should help them. It's like, no, here's all the free stuff. If you want more than that, let me know. Well, and it's and it's interesting because. 
it, you know, someone might think that it's impersonal. What I find is, because I, I use a tool called Yesware, and mm-hmm. Yesware gives me all sorts of templates. And someone said, oh, so it's just like boilerplate templates. And I said, no, if I get asked the same question enough, oftentimes I'm not just sending what's in the template, but the template gives me 90% of what I need, and I know there are no typos in that section. I don't need to proofread that section. It's all buttoned up. Uh And then I get to add whatever personalization I want to it before and after. But I know the meat of it is dead on accurate. I know it's comprehensive. I know that it's been helpful for other people. And it streamlines that communication so the other person can hopefully get better results faster. Absolutely. You're you're 100% right. You're spot on. And and I think... The, it, it's a little bit like, you know, we all have emails that, you know, we, we delete them instead of unsubscribing because deleting takes one click and unsubscribing takes three clicks. Um, but that's in the moment. And then we delete that same email every week for five years when, in fact, we should just take two seconds and unsubscribe. I think it's the same with building these little text snippets and responses um, where it's like just really, you know, whether you're wherever you do your brainstorming in the shower or driving or whatever, just think about, okay, what are the categories of responses where I have to tell someone the same thing, whether it's advice or declining an invitation. Like you get, you get asked to speak a lot, but sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes they don't have budget. So you you can say, uh, you know, semicolon budget, or you can send them a little thing and just say, Hey, I'd love to learn more about your event. And like you said, you craft it in your voice once, make sure there's no typos. And then it it definitely helps you be save time and scale. Well, you know, for, for another, for another day, we'll have you and or you and Julia in to, uh, to <laughs> school everybody on all the tools. Because sure. I'm sure people will, every one of those times we'll have to tell everybody, listen, if you're listening to this episode, then just pull over. Don't be in your car because you're going to have to take notes for a long time, but you're going to capture a ton of information. Yeah, we love that. Let me shift gears a little bit. And I mentioned before that you've got this you know, kind of legendary reputation when it comes to crowdfunding. But beyond that, the the fundraising part is kind of incidental. The thing that that strikes me that you've got tremendous expertise in is how do you attract a crowd? And that might be to sell your product. It might be to raise capital. It might be to gain awareness in the marketplace. But can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the crowdfunding stuff is, you know, the industry itself has kind of come out of nowhere the last few years. You know, it went from $880 million in 2010 to next year it's on track to surpass venture capital as a source of funding, which is sort of sort of crazy. But, yeah, it's about, it's about attracting a crowd and not just any crowd, but the right crowd, the right people. One of the biggest mistakes I see with marketing is we get seduced by the media and the eyeballs and the millions of impressions and, you know, thinking that the Super Bowl ad is going to move the needle. Um, and we stop thinking about bottom up, starting with Seth has a great post called first 10. I believe if you Google first 10, it will show up. Um, and then that was inspired by, uh, Kevin Kelly's amazing blog post, a thousand true fans. The first part of attracting a crowd is identifying who are you going to attract? So some people call this, you know, your ideal customer avatar, the point is 99.9% of people don't care about what you're doing, and, and they shouldn't, and you shouldn't care about them. That 0.1%, those few hundred thousand or a million people are more than enough. So literally figure out who you need to reach and ignore everyone else. For crowdfunding campaigns, you know, they want to get into the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. I was like, no, build it not top-down like that. That's top-down thinking. Do bottom-up thinking. Make a list of the people that you know that want your thing 
and then go from there. So yeah, who's it going to best resonate with? I often in the B2B world, the way I describe it is, look, you need to have an acute understanding of what problem you solve and who really cares about solving that problem. Yep, that's exactly right. And if you you know that first, then you can think about, okay, now where do those people hang out? Mm -hmm. Because let's let's say I have, I mean, using a silly silly metaphor, so we have a we have a yellow lab, so a, a, um, a yellow Labrador retriever, a great dog, and he's got some sort of skin irritation going on, so it's like he's scratching and all this kind of stuff. Now, if I was someone who made a product that helped dogs with allergies, my goal is not to market to 100 million people. My goal is to figure out a way to reach everybody who has a dog that's scratching. Right. Yeah. And if they write the headline that says, you know, is your yellow lab scratching all day? You know, and you see that, that you're, you're in all the way. You're going to read the whole thing. Yeah, you're exactly right. Drill down on the niche. It's funny you mentioned dogs. One of, the, one of the campaigns I helped that's a great example of this because this person went from basically knowing nothing about what we're talking about to, to crushing it. Uh, it wasn't dogs, it was cats. The device was called Kittyo, K-I-T-T-Y-O, and it was a guy named Lee Miller. And he was inventing, basically he was cat-sitting a friend's cat. The cat owner kept asking for pictures and videos and things like that. So Lee would get out his phone and he would play with the cat and draw a laser on the floor and make the cat chase it and send her videos. She was having a blast and he said, well, people don't just leave their cats when they go on vacation. They leave their cats every day when they go to work. Why isn't, you know, we have Wi-Fi, we have these devices. Why isn't there something like that? So he kind of had the light bulb Thomas Edison moment and and concepted this thing called Kittyo. And the key thing is, you know, like you said, you're not even trying to sell that to dog owners. You're trying to sell it to cat owners and not just, you know, not probably the cat lady who lives in the trailer park with her 12 cats because she's probably not buying a kiddo. It's, it's the, you know, people who live in a city who go, to, who go to a job and leave their cats at home, city or suburb, and have a little bit of disposable income and appreciate design. So the website that helped him the most was a little site called House Panther, H-A-U-S Panther, and... The tagline for House Panther is the premier online magazine for design-conscious cat people. It literally, the site is designed within reach for cat freaks. And like all the furniture on it is, it literally looks like design within reach, but it's all cat products. That's awesome. And so it was literally the perfect thing. And so he did a little giveaway on the site because that's, that's how they work. That's another thing. When you partner with these blogs or sites, don't be pushing your thing. Figure out how they interact with their audience. So he did a little giveaway and he gathered... 2,000 emails in a weekend of one little giveaway, and then most of those people bought when he launched his campaign. And it was all because, it's funny, eventually he got on The View, you know, Whoopi Goldberg held held his product up as like a a new thing, didn't move anywhere near as many units as House Panther. So just a a specific example for your listeners that ignore the big top-down stuff, figure out the bottom-up, who wants this, where do they hang out, like you said. Yeah, so so it's it's getting back to that whole notion of you got to understand what your audience wants, why they would care about it, and then then you've got a message worth sharing. I always think it's funny when organizations come to me and they say, man, we, we want to grow our sales, so we're going to hire a bunch of salespeople. And I'm like, hold on. How do you know that the message you have right now actually resonates right. with your customers? Right. So if you're just trying to do more of the same, you may not get better results. First, let's test your messaging and make sure your messaging is right. Then we'll get out there. So now imagine when it comes to this idea of 
of kind of attracting a crowd that it, it's not just a random process you follow. Is there some structure around it? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a simple little framework that is, number one, you have to tell portable stories. And, and the word portable means, and the visual I want you to put in your mind is, think of like a small blue Tiffany's bag, right? Like the small one that might hold like a tennis bracelet. Your story needs to be that portable as in one person needs to be able to tell it to another person. Because if your only marketing and your only sales and only conversion is coming from you to each individual customer, you're literally never going to make it. Look at look at things like Instagram or Airbnb and the rap. If you want that kind of rapid growth, you need to reach one person and then they need to reach 10 and 50 and 100 people, right? So can you give us an example of here's a great example of a portable story and here's one that maybe isn't? Yeah, absolutely. So just to, to stay on the Kidio story, just, just to use that. Kidio's story was that, and it, and it was also the headline on their landing page and the headline on their website. And we workshopped it, and Lee said, "Really, that's kind of, that's kind of basic. Uh, it, it doesn't seem that interesting." That the headline was, "Play with your cat, even when you're not home," and that was it. It was just very simple, very kind of headline benefit-driven kind of headline. But when when Kidio owners tell other Kidio owners about that, or if they're just doing it and people sort of notice, they say, hey, what, do you, what app is that? What game is that? Oh, it's not a game. I'm playing with my cat. They're like, but you're not home, right? So the, the portable story is this device allows you to play with your cat when you're not home, and that's a very easy thing to say, to repeat, to be noticed uh, doing. Um, I think a lot of, I'm trying to think of a good example of a story that's not portable. Uh, by definition, I probably can't think of any. Well, well you know what? You know what? Like, exactly. Yeah. So, the, so the point is, any of the non-portable stories, you can't remember because yeah. they aren't portable. Exactly. Awesome. So the, fir- so the first step is create a portable story. Yep. yep. What's the next step in the framework? So then you want to make your customer the hero. And this is where so many companies fall down. And a good example, so there's a, there's a slide on this. And um, so... I know we have a wide range of age of listeners on this podcast, but most of us at least remember the phenomenon that is Mario Brothers. There's a great slide. We'll link up the image in the show notes. But basically, it, there's three frames in the slide. The first is the little Mario. The second one is the flower that makes Mario Super Mario. And the third one is the big, flaming, indestructible, awesome Super Mario guy. So the the marketing lesson from the slide is everyone thinks they sell the flower. Everyone thinks what you're selling is the ability to the, the features and the benefits and the horsepower and the megapixels and all these individual things. And you can see it like, you know, when you're done listening to this podcast, go look at all sorts of marketing and see how much people focus on features. What you really want to sell is making your customer the hero. What you want to sell is Super Mario. What does Nike yeah. sell? Nike doesn't tell you how many, you know, shoelaces they have or they have the best uh, eyelets or the best, you know, whatever. They Say, made, I want to be like Mike. Be like right? Mike. Literally, that was the most obvious, public, successful. Literally, we're just going to straight up tell. It's just like, just do it. You know, you should learn. You know, people should learn from from Nike about how sort of blatant and literal they are. Literally, just do it and be like Mike. Literally, by putting on these uh, these Jordans, which oh, they happen to cost one hundred and forty dollars. You are five percent more like Michael Jordan, and they didn't even make any bones about it. They didn't even try to dance around. And that's what they were doing. But other companies like Patagonia. I mean, when you buy and wear Patagonia, six days out of the week you wear it to the office. Then the seventh day, you know, at least the story you tell yourself is that you are going to the mountain. So that's part of the story. But then the actual making them awesome is um, 
first you, you wrap that in yourself, but then you have to continue that story beyond the actual sale. So a perfect example of this is think about big DSLR camera companies like Canon and Nikon and things like that, right? I think you and I both dabble, dabble in photography. And so to sell those to us, they show amazing photos and videos and big television advertisements and big, beautiful billboards and everything else. And they get us to buy the camera. And then what do we get when we open the box? We get a 120-page manual that's, you know, a third in Chinese and a third in French and a third in German and literally like the worst thing you could do to help make Clay or Ian a better photographer, right? Why don't you open the box, get your camera, and one URL to the best free digital photography studio that teaches you how to be a phenomenal photographer, right? So Now, 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 by, now by the way, yeah. just to illustrate my earlier point, mm -hmm. so G. Clay, if I wanted to know the single best resource of free information for someone to master their, their DSLR camera, where would I go? <laughs> uh, I would say DP, um, what is it called? DP Photography or DP School. Uh, or DP photo. I can't write. It's digital photography school. If you if you Google that, the URL will be DP something. That is, and we'll put, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. But it's one of those things where I knew you would just know. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's the best books. Actually, my favorite. That one's that one's a little. It's really really good and it's really deep. Um, if you're starting out and you want to get good at digital photography, if basically if you want to go from zero to like better than 90% of your friends at digital photography. Um, I would recommend a series of books called, uh, well, they're by a photographer named Brian Peterson, B-R-Y-A-N Peterson on Amazon. And I know that's like, it's old school and they're, they're real books and they're $20. You could do it all online. But often when you're getting good at photography, you're, you're out and about anyway, you're climbing over rocks or you're crossing a stream. So, uh, Brian, um, yeah, uh, those, those photography books, um, are, are just phenomenal. There's one called understanding exposure, uh, digital photography, learning how to see all this stuff. It's really dude. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get these because <laughs> I'm telling you that I've got a buddy of mine who's a is a film producer um, and director who set, who set up the settings on my DSLR for capturing video. Yeah, and like no one's allowed to touch my camera because I wouldn't know how to change the <laughs> settings if my life depended on it. Don't know how to. And get back. it's kind of embarrassing, but it happens to be true. Now, so we we mentioned this portable story. The customer is the hero, and in fact. One of the things that we write about in Same Side Selling is this idea of a case study. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is I say, look, the biggest mistake most companies make with their case study is they make the case study all about themselves. Right, right. And the reality is what I tell people, look, describe the problem that other people are having. Describe the consequence of that problem to the other people. Mm -hmm. And if you want to give yourself one sentence that says we helped them, that's fine. And then talk about what the result is. Right. So all you're saying is, here's what their problem was, here's what the result is, and you can leave out how you solve their problem. And everyone goes, wow, so that customer went from being a loser to a hero. Yep. I want to be like them. One of the best uh, people I know online that does this, he's, he's a, a good friend and an online marketer. His name is Steve Cam, K-A-M-B, and he's got a site called Nerd Fitness that he started from scratch. And it's basically teaching kind of nerds how to be fit. And he, his case studies are... I think probably 50% of his of his posts and of his traffic to his blog because he's just very good at doing these kind of life transformational, you know, got started from this. And the whole thing is like he still wants you to be a nerd when you're done. He just wants you to be a fit nerd. And in the case studies, in the, the, the customer stories that he does on his blog, and it's very much their transformation. And you know, I mean, what website are you on when you're reading it? You know that it's a nerd fitness case study, but he's very good at not doing the me, 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 never would have happened without me, 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 me. Yeah. 
Same yeah. Thing. And then, so, so the portable story, customer is the hero. Yep. And then the last one is you want to connect your customers with each other, with their customers. I mean, we live in a connection economy. Uber is the world's largest taxi company, and they own no vehicles, right? So Uber is all, it's, it's so valuable, worth billions of dollars, because the little you on your phone connects you and the driver who has the vehicle. They don't own the vehicles. Facebook is the world's most popular media owner. They create no content, right? We create the content for them. Alibaba is the most valuable retailer, and they hold no inventory. And then before we mentioned Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider owns no real estate. So we live in a connection economy. So companies need to figure out how to better connect their customers to what they want and to each other and to their customers, not to your message or your product, right? Um, And that is just you know, as we're seeing that everywhere, everything is going to be one click away. Anything you want, it almost already is. It depends on where you live. But literally, in a one-click world, you know, what what is Nike's role in a world when I can walk into my kitchen and three D print myself size eleven and a quarter shoes? Right? Are those Nike? Do they have the swoosh on them? Like, does Nike sell me the design to do that? But when when everything is one click away and we can have whatever we want, uh, the 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 one thing that you know, the automation and the robots are not going to be able to, to provide is thinking how to connect us with what we want. What I love is that people talk about the connection economy, but I think you've put it in terms that make it very easy for people to understand. Because oftentimes when I'm talking to organizations, they struggle and say, no, no, but but we can't connect our clients because what if they start talking to each other right. without us? Right. It's like, well, then you're not confident in what you're delivering. Exactly. You've got to fix that first because you, you, can't, you can't necessarily fake that. Which, which loops it back to the portable story. Imagine if, if Airbnb prevented Airbnb's customers from talking. They would be one, one hundredth the size they are. It's because they talk and, oh, I got to go to France and stay in this guy's really cool apartment. Uh, because they talk, that's, how, that's the growth. And so you're right that if, you, if you're operating a bit in a business where you know, that kind of secrecy or information withholding is your competitive advantage, you know, you're in big trouble. Even in the last 10 or 15 years, if you see like the VCs, right? Fred Wilson, Mark Suster, they expose everything on their blog. It used to be everyone thought that the VCs advantage in that negotiation was that they had all the information, they knew how the game worked, they could screw over the rookie entrepreneur. And now between Bradfield, Fred Wilson, Mark Suster, and lots of other people, they've they've literally opened the kimono, exposed everything, and they're getting better deal flow because of it. So I would yeah, I would definitely challenge anyone who thinks that uh, you know, preventing people from connecting and talking, it's it's literally the opposite. When we talk about connecting with other people, a lot of times what we need to do is figure out how when we meet someone initially, we introduce ourselves to them in a way that's memorable. And you know, in same side selling, we talk about this idea of the same side pitch, which has got a number of elements to it. But I know that you've got a method for doing this that's really straightforward, and I've seen it be incredibly effective. So, can you talk about the intro that you teach people? Yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of came about randomly, and because I was not. Oh, actually, it's a funny story. I was at. Jim Quick's Superhero U event in San Diego about three or four years ago. And Jim knows a ton of people and always brings together really interesting people. And I've been like a WordPress fan and user for for years. Um, and I knew, you know, I knew Matt Mullenweg, but I didn't really know what he looked like. And so we're on break, we're on like a coffee break at this uh, Superhero U event with Jim Quick. And 
I turned and, and, and we met and he shook hands. I just said, oh, hey, how are you doing? And what's your name? He's like, Matt. I was like, oh, Matt, what's your last name? He's like, Mullenweg. And then in an instant, I realized who it was. I mean, this guy founded, you know, created WordPress, which powers 20% of the internet. And so I was completely starstruck and just blown away. Also that I'd been talking with this guy and didn't know that it was Matt Mullenweg. And what's what's interesting is there's a photo. We can link it up in the, in the show notes. There, a photographer happened to catch me right in the jaw-dropping ocean. This is Matt Mullen big moment. And so uh, there's a funny photo of me. But, but I realized that after that transaction, after that interaction and conversation, I walked away. And I, it was one of those just, you know, Chris Farley slap your forehead like so stupid about how I, how I explained who I am and what I do. And so I knew that I, wasn't, I didn't have a good way to introduce myself. And I, in that moment, said, I need to fix this. I need to find a better way to more confidently explain, you know, who introduce myself and explain who I am. Because we all get asked, so what do you do? Uh, about three times a day, we meet, you know, two or three people a day, especially you being on, on the road, you know, we, we're, we're on the road on planes and meet people all the time and cocktail parties and different events and things. So I decided to uh, figure out a, a better way to do it. So the, the base formula is you say the word I and then some version of the word help or the word help. And then whoever it is you help, so your client or your customer or, you know, if you help fourth graders, then you say that. And then whatever result you help them achieve. So for me, I help, I say I, say I and then help. And then the person I help is usually entrepreneurs. But if I'm in Brooklyn, I might say creatives. Um, or if I'm at a writer's conference, I might say writers. Um, and then whatever result you help them achieve, and if it's in the context of crowdfunding, I say I help them fund their dreams. So put it all together, I say, someone says, so Clay, what do you do? And you can confidently look them in the eye and say, I help entrepreneurs fund their dreams. And then you pause, and that's the key, is you don't ramble on and on and on. Because when most of us say, so what do you do, we get this five-minute, you know, like I was talking to Matt Mullenweg, kicking the floor, looking over his shoulder, not confident, um, sort of, uh, you know, explanation of who you are. And when you can get it down and practice it, where as they start to formulate that sentence, you know what your answer is going to be. You know, if you're shaking hands, you can hold the handshake, you can look him in the eye. It's as much about the confident delivery and knowing what you're going to say as it is about the actual words. And then you can, you can riff on it. You can change it. Like I said, if I'm, if I'm at a place with a bunch of creatives, I say, I help creatives fund their dreams. And uh, Julia, my girlfriend, has a different riff on it. So there's another kind of formula, which is I'm X for Y, if that makes more sense. So, so Julia helps people with productivity to be more efficient and process email meetings, project management better. And so people know what a personal trainer is. They know why they hire a personal trainer. But people don't really know what a productivity coach is or what they do. So, but they know what productivity is. So she riffs on it and said, I'm a personal trainer for productivity. So people know what a personal trainer is, and they know what productivity is, so that kind of X for Y. So those are kind of the two, two formulas. You know, I help blank, and then whatever help you help them achieve, or if it makes more sense to do, I'm X for Y, anchoring it with something that that person knows. So, so, in, so in my business, it might be, you know, I help businesses grow with integrity. Yep, that's good. The one thing I would, I would make two small tweaks to that. One is businesses is kind of generic. Yeah. And, and so like you want to relate it to you, you want them to know exactly who you're talking about. So if I say entrepreneurs or creatives, um, see, dude, I was just trying to get to six words. <laughs> the, the six is <laughs> Cause my thought a, was yeah. I help B2B companies, you know, I help B2B, you know, B2B executives sell with integrity is what I'm really thinking. Yeah. But. I, I like executives because it, where do executives work? They work at 
big companies. And so when you say executives, then uh, because if you say companies, the person it doesn't plant someone else in the mind for them to you know either be or refer you to. But if you say executives, everyone's like, oh, I know an executive that wants to sell better. Um, so yeah, I, I like that a lot. So last last couple things here. And you can, I'll ask you both of them, and you can pair them together or handle, handle them individually. So the first one is, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from a struggle that maybe you've encountered in, in your business life? And the second one is, what's the single biggest tip that you would have or a piece of advice that you would have for our audience? Yeah, so the, I mean, I've had a boatload of failures and lessons from those failures. So um, just get get more comfortable being uncomfortable. Like a very specific, uh, specific failure that I had was I was building a technology startup a couple of years ago and I was building the wrong thing. I could see, I had this kind of, uh, blinders on this vision of what I wanted to build and sell to the fortune 500 companies. Um, and I was, I was completely building the wrong thing. Luckily, and this is, this can kind of go into the tip, which is, you know, Good marketing and, and good building of startups and growth and everything else is, is testing and trying things, having these kind of what I call micro failures. How, how quickly and cheaply and small can you fail? So I wasn't coding the actual product. And what, what it was was fairly complex. It was like video speed networking. Um, but I was smart enough to take what I knew about lean startup and build out the screens stitch them together using this other tool, and then show it to 30 companies. I went and had meetings with GE and Silicon Valley Bank, and I showed them, and I said, hey, this is what I'm thinking about building. Not like this is what I've put a million dollars into. Do you like it? I said, what do you think about this? And 30 out of 35 companies said, you know what? We only want the first two screens. The rest of it, either we don't, we can't use or we have handled. So I was able to create this thing for less than $10,000 instead of $500,000. So learn how to test and fail small. I was, I was still, you know, I was building the wrong thing, but the only thing I built was Photoshop screens and high fidelity wireframes. I wasn't building the actual thing. So uh, lots of failures I could, I could talk about, but fail, learn how to fail small, I guess is the tip. You know, let's make, there's a great little sign quote thing I like that says, let's make better mistakes tomorrow. And I think if every day we can make better mistakes, not be afraid of mistakes, not try to be Six Sigma defect free because that's just not the world we live in. We don't have a, a competence shortage. We have a willing to fail shortage. And I think you're going to start to see companies implement things like you need to turn in your failures every week. You need to show me what you tried and failed at. Not, not failed big, not folded the company, but what were your micro failures this week? Yeah, because at least then, at least then, you know, people are thinking creatively and they're pushing themselves. They're not just falling back on what they've always done. And then you get no innovation whatsoever. Exactly. Cool. What's the best way for our listeners to get a hold of you? We'll link it up in the show notes. But if you just Google me, you can find uh, crowdfundinghacks.com or clayabear.com. You can find me on the internet pretty easily. Excellent. Excellent. And and I'm sure people are dying to figure out, is there any guidance on this six-word intro? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put together a little uh, ebook for your listeners and let's put that crowdfundinghacks.com slash Ian. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, cool. So I'll make an ebook for the six-word intro for anyone who wants to uh, learn more about that, test that, and do theirs. And we'll put it at crowdfundinghacks.com slash Ian. Excellent, Clay. It's very generous, and we will make sure to link all that up in the show notes. So I can't thank you enough for being here. As always, I learned a ton just by talking to you, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. As always, I have a blast talking to you. Thanks, Ian. 
Clay is one of those guys I could talk to for hours. We definitely will have to have him back on the show because he's just a wealth of knowledge on so many areas. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap and the top three things that I think you can take away and use right away. First, recognize that we are in a connection economy. And if you're not sure about that, look to companies like Airbnb and Uber who have built huge empires without owning any real assets. Second, Make sure that you've got a portable story, something where your customer is the hero, not you're the hero. And finally, his six-word intro, I help fill in the blank, followed by the results, allows you to capture your audience in just six words. Now, remember, this show exists for you, the listener. It doesn't exist without you. So if there's a guest you think I should have on the show, if there's a topic you'd like me to cover, please send me a note to ian.altman at growmyrevenue.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Have a great week, make a difference in the people you impact, and discover a way to grow revenue that everybody can embrace, even your customer. Thank you for joining us each week for the Grow My Revenue Business Cast with Ian Altman. Unconventional strategies for selling, innovation, and leadership. Be sure to subscribe to our program on iTunes or Stitcher. Don't miss Ian's weekly newsletter and be a part of the conversation on growmyrevenue.com and via Twitter at growmyrevenue.com.